So Matthew 21, verse sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you this morning. Um, just thankful for your presence, Lord, thankful um, that you are a God that dwells with his people, that we can know you intimately and have relationship with you. Um, And Lord, we thank you for Jesus, that we can look to him and see your heart and see that you get angry about things that matter. Um, And so God, we ask that this morning you would um, just speak to us. You would allow us to hear what it is that you have for us, that you give wisdom give wisdom and truth to Brian as he speaks. Um, and we just thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Thanks, Ellie. Hey, everybody. Good to see you guys. Everybody doing good? Good, good. Uh, shout out to those of you who are watching online as well. Thanks for being patient. And uh, I, think, I think we figured it out. So uh, my name is Brian. One of the pastors here at the Summit. Um, I brought a picture to sum up the way that writing a sermon felt this past week. So can we bring up the first picture? Uh, here it is, right here. Not sure if you've seen this meme before, um, but the tale was Sunday for me, uh, and Saturday night was the uh, was last Sunday, and then uh, the the face was uh, last night. This thing has been this is a tough passage, okay? And I feel like I was like, I, I I can do this last Sunday, and then last night I wasn't feeling great. So um, um, if this feels like it's a bit all over the place, or you're like, wait, where? where like, it, it's, it's not you, it's me, okay? I'm just telling you that on the front end. I don't know if I'm just trying to lower the bar of expectations, so hopefully I can just barely hurdle it, but uh, that's, uh, that's, that's how I feel. Um, what we're talking about today, uh, this might feel a bit over the place, so let me, let me give you kind of the North Star that we're chasing after. What, what we're going to talk about today is the anger of Jesus, the anger of Jesus. This is the, the story where Jesus goes in the temple, he turns over tables, this is sort of the the uh, uh, case study of Jesus getting really, really angry. And, um, and the thing that I'm hoping you come away from, from everything we say is the, the, the anger of Jesus is actually a gift. It, it's a gift that intersects with uh, the most practical, uh, uh, necessary, on-the-ground, grit-and-grind-of-life stuff that we are going to go through right now uh, and in the, in the coming week. Uh, I brought another picture. Here it is right here. Um, this is, I don't know if you know what this is. This is a portable battery charger jumper for a car. Uh, and this is a gift that my dad gave me. 
Um, I love my dad very much. My parents are watching this. My parents are very generous. But on the whole, you know, like at Christmas, you always had the vibe that like mom had picked out all the gifts. You know, anybody grew up in one of these homes? Like anybody grew up in a home where you could tell that dad was finding out what was given at the same time that you were unwrapping the present at the exact same time. That, that was probably more of the vibe of our house. And I remember six or seven years ago, uh, my, my parents usually come out here for Christmas and, um, and there were sort of murmurings that like dad had picked out a gift this year. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, what is it? You know, what is it going to be? And there was a bit of hype surrounding this gift as well. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, is this the time? Do I finally get Bronco season tickets? Like, what, what, is, what is this gift? And I unwrap it, and it's, it's this. You know, it's this uh, portable battery charger. And uh, here's the thing about this thing. You know, obviously, when you unwrapped it, it was not exactly what I was expecting to get at Christmas uh, from my dad. Uh, but here's the thing about this thing. This thing, it's not very glamorous. It's not very beautiful. It doesn't make you cry. You know, like the kid, like, oh, my God, Nintendo 64. Have you seen that clip? No? Okay. Um, well, there's a clip that that happens. And, uh, like, you don't do that. But I'll tell you something. This has been one of the, you need to YouTube that later, okay? Just YouTube Nintendo 64 Christmas, and then you'll thank me later, okay? Um, but this is one of the best gifts I have ever been given. Not beautiful, not glamorous. This thing has bailed me out of so many crises. Uh, and people in my circle of relationships, they're like, hey, do you have that battery? You have that charger? You have that? Actually, I went in my garage to take a picture of this. You know where this was? It wasn't in my garage. It was in my brother's garage because it had jumped his car uh, last week. He had to, I was like, can you send me a picture of it at least? This is the lens through which I want you to see the anger of Jesus. Uh, It's not particularly glamorous. It's not particularly beautiful. Um, Sometimes it it initially seems downright off-putting, but the anger of Jesus is an incredible gift that intersects with uh, the most basic and practical needs of our life. And that's what we're gonna, we're gonna dive into. I think, I think a lot of us are, are kind of shocked by the anger of Jesus. We don't really know what to do with it. I think some of us are shocked because we were raised in religious environments where we were told never get angry and Jesus never gets angry. Um, I think a lot of us uh, are fired up about it because we're angry people. And we're like, I know some people that Jesus would be angry at. I know some people, I can point them out for you, Jesus. Get them. Um, others of us, others of us, uh, have no surprise at the anger of Jesus because we sort of feel like Jesus is angry all the time at us. Uh, a lot of us wake up and we're kind of like, of course Jesus is angry. I can tell you who's the front of the line of his anger. It's me. And you just live a life where your disposition uh, is assuming that God's disposition towards you is a scowl uh, as opposed to a smile. Every day feels like a day to prove yourself and to kind of earn back that favor from God. Um, let me just say this on the, uh, on, the, on the front end, like anger is an emotion given by God for us to live fully uh, and really experience the fullness of what it means to live in reality. Chip Dodd in his excellent book, uh, The Voice of the Heart, he, he, he says this about anger. He says, authentic anger, and I think nowhere is this on better display, by the way, in what Jesus does here, is a caring feeling telling us that something matters. Anger exposes what we value and expresses our willingness to do what is required to reach that value. It allows us to stay with our values, take sides, and even die for what we believe in. And so even, for example, some of you were raised in environments where you were like, never be angry, never be angry, never be angry. And you might be surprised to know that scripture, for example, gives a mandate for a healthy category of an expression of anger. For example, Paul in Ephesians 4, when he says, be angry and do not sin. 
So there's this possibility manifested by Jesus here as a particular case study where uh, anger can be a healthy expression of kind of what it is that we are supposed to feel. So in the midst of all this confusion, in the midst of everything that we might look at, here's kind of the the North Star we're gonna chasing uh, after that I hope you feel at the end of this, is that the anger of Jesus is a gift that provides authentic friendship and authentic forgiveness. That Jesus' anger gives us authentic friendship with Jesus and then also gives us authentic forgiveness from Jesus. And so that's what we're gonna dive into uh, as we try to wrap our mind around this, this really bizarre and complex scene. And it, it might feel like, what in the world is he up to? But I feel like those are the most fun to kind of dive into and explore. I even just, I'm just, I'm gonna pray. God, would you help me and would you help us? Um, there are these scenes that either we feel so familiar with the way we interpret them is totally other than what you intended. Um, and there's also scenes that feel so bizarre, we just sort of tap out and we wanna press into the mystery of understanding and wrestling with you. And so um, I pray you would feel like, uh, I, I wanna be helpful, um, but my prayer is that I'm not helpful from a performative standpoint, but from a standpoint of like people feel like they hear you and know you and love you and you're alive and you love them. Um, and so would you just, do something special uh, in our time together. And I ask these things in the, in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so we're gonna look at authentic friendship and then authentic uh, forgiveness. Let's look first at the authentic friendship of Jesus. We find in this scene that Jesus is a friend. Uh, he is a companion. We have fellowship and kinship with Jesus. A lot of times when we feel most isolated is when we feel angry at something and we feel like we're the only one who cares. It's one thing to be hurt. It's another thing to feel hurt and alone. And a lot of times when we feel hurt and alone, even the way we cope with that emotion is we go to an unhealthy place of self-pity of, I'm the only one, nobody cares. But here's the really beautiful and good news of this particular scene is we see that when our hearts are angry at things that God's heart breaks towards, Jesus is with us uniquely. Jesus is a friend in the midst of the pain. C.S. Lewis, he famously said that friendship is found in that moment where you say, what, you too? I thought I was the only one. And a lot of times the way we interpret that quote is like through hobbies, right? Like, oh, you like baseball? We can be friends now. I thought I was the only one because baseball appears to be dying in the United States of America. But like, and I think there's, a, there's an element of that. There's a truthfulness of that. There's something fun and uh, 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 whimsical that God is up to when he unites people with that. But I think there's also a camaraderie when we find we're not the only ones angry at something. And what we see here is the anger of Jesus on display is these various things that upset us that also upset Jesus. And consequently, we can find a unique intimacy in our friendship with Jesus. We can find unique intimacy in our prayers towards Jesus, knowing we're not alone in the midst of the struggle. Now, the question we should ask ourselves is, um, what is Jesus angry at? Let me, let me set some of the scene so we wrap our mind around, why is Jesus so upset here? Like, why does he fly off the handle and start throwing furniture all over the place when he goes into the temple? Well, remember, 
Jesus is making his way to die in Jerusalem. And last week we saw what was called the triumphal entry. We called it the bizarre entry because typical kings enter in on lions or elephants like in Aladdin or whatever it is. And Jesus goes in on a donkey. And that should be very perplexing that he does this. And then he goes now into the temple. He is now going into the center of the city of God and to the temple of God to take on the leaders of the people of God. But the great irony of all of this is this is God in the flesh going into the temple of God that's meant to reflect the character and nature of who God is to his people. So it's kind of like the owner or the, uh, I don't know, like I'm sure none of you did this, but you probably know some people who, you know, maybe your parents were out of town, their parents out of town, you of course not, their parents were out of town and you threw a party and then you like all of a sudden saw headlights on the driveway and you were like, oh crap. Like when mom and dad walk in the room, they can do whatever they want to do. Tim Keller, he actually sums this up really, really well. He says, um, the only person who has the right to rearrange the furniture in the home is the owner. And that's really what's on display here. The reason Jesus is flipping over tables is because God has stepped into the temple of God and he's very angry at what he sees because it's such a staggering misrepresentation of the character and nature of who God is, which is where we start to even tap into why is Jesus so angry? Think about if you've ever been misrepresented. Anybody ever been misrepresented before? It is the worst. You know, like, like I'm not just talking about like somebody stole your ID, which is a pain, yeah, I, I'm, I'm like, I didn't buy that. Like, I would never shop there. $700 on Pokemon cards, what? That didn't happen to me. I know it seems like an oddly bizarre specific thing, but maybe that happened to one of you. Maybe that was a prophetic moment right there and you feel seen by God, <laughs> right? Like, that's upsetting, but, but especially if you take it a step further, if they're like, oh, you know what so-and-so said. You're like, I didn't say that. That's not, uh, okay. We get upset about that. How much more is God deserving to be angry when he's misrepresented? Now, how does, how does the heart of God get misrepresented in this scene? We're gonna see three different things that Jesus is very angry at. One, uh, he, he comes into the temple to find that this temple is elevating profit over people. Is elevating profit over people. Verse 12, and Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Now, the, the portion of the temple that Jesus is in, we believe, is something called the court of Gentiles. The, the temple had four different uh, uh, components. You had the Holy of Holies, which was the center of where you believed that God dwelt. You had the court of the Jews where circumcised Jewish males were. You had the court of women where Jewish women were. And then the biggest portion of the temple was something called the court of Gentiles. It was huge. You take 13 course fields, put them together. That's the size of the court of Gentiles. Huge, uh, incomprehensibly large. And, and the point of this, the point of the court of the Gentiles, you know, architecture, is anybody in architecture here? Anybody? Nobody, okay. Um, I'm not in architecture either, believe it or not. Um, but I actually, I find it very fascinating because one of the things when you read a bit about architecture is what you find is um, the way that something is built is reflective of those people's values. Okay? Architecture is a reflection of values. So you think about, for example, the way that God mandates the temple to be constructed and the largest portion of it is so that the nations might come to know and love and worship him. Look at me. God's heart has always been global in nature. God's heart has always been that a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation would come into the throne room of grace to exalt God. 
He's always been this way. Even the temple communicates that reality. And so you can imagine the horror that Jesus, God in the flesh feels, going into the temple of God that's supposed to reflect him to the court of Gentiles that is meant to be the place of welcoming of the nations, all these people who've come from all over the world to get to the temple at the time of Passover to explore and try to figure out who God is, to repent of the pagan deities that they are raised to believe and to exalt Yahweh. And the first thing they are met with is a message that, God does not love you. He wants to use you and squeeze squeeze as much profit out of you. And you can imagine after that trip, you'd be kind of bummed you made that distance, right? You're probably like, I knew a lot of pagan deities like that back home. Rather than being met with this message of God loves you and knows you and wants to know your heart. And yeah, sure, like a fruit of that is a life of generosity. That's why Jesus talked about money all the time. But antithetical to that is a message of not that God wants your heart, but God wants your money. The heart of faith is that money is not bad, but we use money to bless people. And they encounter the exact opposite of that, of they are using people to get as much money as possible. He's just angry, really, really angry. Secondly, we see that national politics are elevated over kingdom worship, which I'm sure you, that has nothing to do with what's going on right now. Okay, so verse, verse 13, only an issue 2,000 years ago. Thanks be to God. Verse 13, he said to them, it is written, and the, th- and the thing that Jesus is gonna quote here is out of Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. He says, my house, which is already like, he's not leaving any mystery, right? Like, like only one guy gets to call the temple my house. That's God. So he's not trying to be like, wait, is he a prophet? Is he a good moral teacher? He's like, my house, this place, my house, shall be called a house of prayer. By the way, in the original uh, quote of this, back in the Old Testament, the full, the full verse, you know, it says, my house should be a house of prayer for all nations, for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Now, where do we get the political connotation here? Well, it's interesting. Um, it, it's, if you see there, that word robbers, it's interesting, there's a, there's a wide, if you read commentators on this passage, believe it or not, there's a wide uh, spectrum of interpretations of what exactly is going on in this passage. But the commentators I read at least are all unanimous that Jesus has a very political connotation in mind when he uses that word robbers. Actually, what's interesting is elsewhere in the Gospel of Matthew, that word robbers is always translated insurrectionist, like political insurrectionist. And so what it's believed to have in mind or what's happened here is that the Jewish leaders had transformed the temple from being a place to know God and meet with God and be forgiven by God and be reconciled back with God into a place to plot how to politically overthrow the Roman government. That's what the purpose of the temple had been reduced to. Here's how uh, D.A. Carson, who is like the Michael Jordan of New Testament scholars, okay? So when he says something, you typically want to listen to it. Um, he says, this is like, he says, this is at the heart of Jesus' review. He says, the temple was meant to be a house of prayer for all nations, but they had made it a nationalist stronghold. Let me say something here. The peer pressure to reduce, the cultural peer pressure to reduce the purpose of the church for existing first and foremost for the worship of God is something less of that. That is the advancement of an earthly political agenda 
is nothing new. And Jesus is just as angry today as he was 2,000 years ago. And I know for some of you, when you hear that, you're like, get him, right? Because you're thinking of the people who are politically different than you. And I'm talking about all of them, all of it, anathema. This pressure to reduce the purpose of the church from first and foremost, worshiping and knowing and loving God and living as bizarre, revolutionary, let me use the word of scripture, sojourner, stranger, exile, alien. Two, the silencing and the amplification of the parts of scripture that, that, that are coherent with our predetermined political agendas and then trying to advance earthly causes out of this is nothing new and don't do it. That's the most like, pastorally nice way I can put it. Please don't do it. We exist in a cultural moment, and look, you'll never hear me say that politics are insignificant, but they're not ultimate. And we are bombarded with messaging, both from the right and from the left, to say that the church exists for political agendas. And we don't. We don't. We, advance, we exist for the advancement of the kingdom agenda of Jesus and anything that will fit into that. It was going on 2,000 years ago. The temple exists for this political agenda, and Jesus is mad. Three. <laughs> Strength is elevated over weakness. That's the other thing that Jesus encounters. The strength is elevated over weakness. Verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him to the temple and he healed them, which is a shocking thing for Jesus to do. This is actually the last healing that we see in the life of Jesus. Um, I mean, other than his resurrection, but I'm saying to him healing other people. This is the last healing that we see in the gospel according to Matthew. Um, and it's interesting he heals these guys. I mean, not just because it's significant, but it's where he does it. I mean, uh, uh, blind and lame people were viewed as being unclean and consequently they weren't really even welcome in the temple at all. And he's like showing the heart of God, like, come on, come on. I have a particular affection for those who, who are on the margins here, who aren't welcomed here. This is my favorite, favorite part, verse 15. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and, and then I love this little detail here. And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Now, I love this detail because this is one of those details that Matthew throws in there. You should be laughing at this. Um, so so I'll, I'll try to explain to you why, okay? Um, all right, there's a couple things I love about kids. Uh, one, they're not great at picking up on social cues of when you are supposed to say something and not supposed to say something. Uh, my, my, my worst moments as a, being a parent now for almost eight years has been when my children have said something wildly inappropriate um, in situations where they, like, well, dad, you said it. And you're like, oh, Mike, okay. Um, <laughs> Like, there's, there's just a way we, be, this is a society. There's ways we behave, kid. Okay. Um, the other thing I love about kids is they will chant whatever they hear. So like, for example, my son Bear, who, thanks be to God, is more sports crazed than even I am. One of God's greatest gifts to me um, is I have like somebody to watch games with now. Um, like we'll get done watching something. And he literally like seven hours later, like putting him to bed, at, like, defense, defense, defense. He's two in November. It's amazing, okay? He's just, de like, okay. So, so here's the dynamic here. 
of the temple is like, you've had these kids. So what, what, what happened last week? What were the crowds chanting as, as, as Jesus was going through, right? They were like, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. But then they're getting closer to the temple. They're getting closer to Jerusalem. They're getting around the Roman authorities. They're getting around the Jewish authorities. And they know what, we don't say that anymore, right? Like, like that, that could be saying, like we're saying like this guy's gonna overthrow all these different systems and structures. The kids don't care about any of that stuff. So they're just like following Jesus into the temple, like Hosanna, 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 right in the midst of these guys. And they are angry. They are, it actually says, when they heard the children crying on the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, it says they were indignant. Sometimes that word is translated furious. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? The reason they're asking Jesus is because what they would expect is for him to rebuke them, to rebuke the blind and the lame people, get out of here, you're unclean, don't touch me, to rebuke the children and say, don't call me that. And Jesus said to them, yes, I do. I just love that. I wonder if he like had a long pause. I'd be like, yeah. Oh, you want me to say more? Okay. Yes. Have you never read, which is just, okay, at this point, anybody seen the movie Eight Mile where like there's the rap battle back and forth? I know I'm giving like, like 1990s references, but bear with me here, okay? You know, there's like this epic rap battle back and forth and Eminem says something that finally is so powerful. Everybody's like, oh, and then he drops the mic and he walks off, right? This is one of those statements from Jesus where he says to a bunch of guys who have professionally studied the Old Testament, have you not read this? <laughs> it's just amazing. Oh, you can say that if you want. Have you never read? Oh, yeah, okay. Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Some incredibly holy swagger from Jesus. He's like, I do hear them, and I do know what they're saying. And if you had read, this is the difference between intelligence and wisdom. It's not just enough to know about stuff, but actually know what does God want to do with it. If you'd read this stuff, you would have read that they, they were talking about me. You would have understood that the reason I'm not backing down is because the owner of the house is here. And you should be saying the exact same thing. The point that I'm trying to show you in all this is in a lot of ways, the, 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 the uh, surprising anger of Jesus, again, like I said on the front end, is, is you have a companionship, there is a, a kinship there's a fellowship with the heart of God when you are angry at the things that God gets angry at. And God gets angry at a lot of stuff. And a lot of times, especially in Western Christianity, we don't want to talk that way, but it's biblical. So we will talk that way. And so look, if you get angry at the things that God gets angry at, now, what you shouldn't do there is think of the things that instinctually make you angry or the things you feel like other people are angry at. And so, yeah, yeah, God would be mad at that. I would be very careful there. I would not take the Lord's name in vain there. But I would say is you have a understanding of the scriptures that you understand that this thing I'm angry at, I'm not just angry at because I'm an angry person, but I take on the authority of the word of God. God is angry at that as well. What you can do is find a fellowship, a kinship with the heart of God to know you are never alone in those realities. You never have to say, I'm the only one. You never have to say, nobody cares the way I care. God cares more than you care. And so let me say this, like, look, if it burdens you when you are in environments where people are not blessed and built up by money, but people are used for the sake of the profit of money, if you are enraged 
when you see people elevate politics from a place of importance to preeminence and use the preeminence of politics as justification to opt out of the clear commands of Scripture. This is one of the things I get angry at, if you can't tell. It makes me so angry. Sorry, I'm trying to pick my next words carefully, especially since we're live streaming this one. It makes me so angry. That's what I'll just say again. <laughs> like, it is just, yeah. If that makes you angry. If it makes you angry when people who are weak, and don't just add in your own definition there. Think, for example, what Jesus has in mind here. Children and people who have special needs are seen as intrusions and burdens and and far from God and unnecessary. If that angers you, you are not alone in that anger. Like Jesus turned over tables over those issues because it so misrepresented his character and nature to people who were trying to figure out who God really is. (sighs) Two, let's talk about the authentic forgiveness of Jesus. So Jesus drops the mic. Oh, okay, leaves, verse 17. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. So Jesus, he has this rhythm of he like leaves the city and he goes back into the city. So he's going about two miles east uh, to a little town. It's like a suburb of Jerusalem called Bethany. Uh, And he lodged there. Verse 18, in the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Now, uh, what's important to understand is in the Old Testament, kind of the predominant image that a fig tree would uh, carry the connotation of is that of Israel. In fact, a lot of commentators believe he's making a direct allusion to uh, Jeremiah 8 uh, that says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord. So this is God speaking. There are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. And and so the, the metaphor is meant to be fairly overt here of here's Jesus who is God stepping into the temple of God in the middle of the city of God and finds no fruit amongst the people of God. And he's basically like judgment is coming. Severe judgment is coming, uh, which is in many ways the remainder of the, the gospel according to Matthew. Severe judgment from Jesus. Verse 20, when the disciples saw it, they marveled saying, how did the fig tree wither at once? Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do, (laughs) sorry, I'm laughing here, is like sometimes sometimes it feels like Jesus didn't hear the question. You know, you're like, what? Like, so like, if you feel like Jesus is all of a sudden pulling something totally random here and you're like, what? Did you? Okay, you're not alone, but he has a really stunning point, Okay. So they asked him, basically, like, what happened to the fig tree? And he's like, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Now, it seems like that statement, especially you're like, what? Like, mountains, seas, faith? What are you, like, were you, did you mishear me? What, what is, Okay. This is very important uh, to understand, but this is where we're going to kind of go into some of the weeds of, um, weeds make it seem bad. Uh, we're going to go into some of the details, the roses, of, uh, of understanding, this would be a lot easier uh, if all of us were Jewish, but we're not. 
Uh, thanks be to God for God's heart for the nations because we're the fruit of that. We're the Gentiles. Um, but we have to understand what, 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 is, what is going on. Now, what I want you to focus in on, he says, but even if you say to, um, do you see, see it out there? But even if you say to, and what's the next word he says here? This mountain. You see where it says this mountain? You see where it says this mountain? Yes. Okay. This is maybe the most important word in the totality of this passage um, because what it has in mind is that Jesus has a particular mountain in mind. He's not talking about a mountain. He's not talking about any mountain. He's not talking about Mount Evans. He's saying this mountain. Now the question of course is like, well, what, what mountain would Jesus be talking about? What's interesting is the vast majority of commentators, you know what mountain they think Jesus is talking about, especially from where he's having this conversation with them? It's something called the Temple Mount. The temple was on a mountain. That's why they called it the Temple Mount. And since he just came from the temple and just pronounced judgment over the temple, when he's talking about a mountain being thrown into the sea through the power of prayer, he's talking about the very place that he just came from. The judgment is not just coming, but the temple will be judged. The question is like, why in the world is that a very big deal? So let's do some of the... uh, all right, let's, let's, go to the next, let's go to the next slide. I'm gonna try to, try to explain this. Here's what I also wanna have in your mind. This is an image I provided. Um, I know it looks like a 1992 JPEG. Um, that was all, totally on me. I did not, yeah. So anyways, um, technology is not one of, my, one of my gifts. But I'm gonna try to... Okay, how do I wanna dive into this. Um, let me start here. Here was the point of the temple. The point of the temple was a restoration of what was lost at Eden. Eden was not just a garden, it was a sanctuary. It was a sanctuary that reflected the purpose for which God created the crown jewel of humanity, that is you and me, men and women, image bearers of God. That was for friendship. That was for relationship. That was for, in the cool of the day, that we could walk with God in the way that somebody walks with a friend. Obviously, that's not our experience. That reality is so incomprehensible. It's hard, uh, comprehensible. It's, it's difficult to even wrap your mind around what that would be like someday. Sin enters the world. Separation separates God and people. But God being uh, in pursuit of restored relationship, but is really at the heart of salvation, gives these various uh, uh, kind of intermediaries in order to restore what's lost at Eden. For example, you have fairly soon uh, the setup of something called the tabernacle, and then you have something called the temple. And the point of the temple was to figure out who God is, to be forgiven by God, and to be restored back into right relationship with God. And so even if you look at the architecture of the temple, you see my laser pointer here? Isn't that a great way to end a sermon is with a laser pointer and a slide? I know. Um, Okay, so, so let me kind of help you wrap your mind around this. You've got, uh, there, right there would have been called the Holy of Holies. This is where the epicenter of the temple and it was believed to be the epicenter where the presence of God dwells. What you would have on the outside of this is the court of men, court of Israel, which would be where uh, circumcised Jewish men would be. You have the court of women where Jewish women would be. And then you see this giant outside part here, this giant outside perimeter. That would have been the court of Gentiles and that's where Jesus is uh, probably 
cleansing the temple. And what's happening is men and women are making pilgrimage from wherever they are coming. They're coming in and they're being met with this and the character and nature of who God is being distorted when really they're trying to get here and trying to figure out the heart of who God is. I wanna know God. I wanna be forgiven by God. I wanna be restored back in a relationship with God. I wanna experience Eden. I wanna experience friendship with God. And you consider the astounding nature of Jesus up on this hill on Bethany, overlooking this mountain like this and saying, this is going to be thrown into the sea. You're like, how? How is that, how is that possible to have happened? Now, here's the amazing thing is when Jesus says out of anger, this is going to be thrown out into the sea. You know, a lot of times when we're angry and we say things about people, we're like, I'm done with you. You don't deserve me. I'm out. However it is, we justify this. Here's the amazing thing that differentiates the anger of Jesus is that the anger of Jesus is always wedded to a heart of grace that is welcoming and receptive to needy sinners who don't want to have this sort of uh, uh, brokenness in our relationship anymore. And what's amazing is what Jesus gives is a promise earlier in the gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 12. You know what Jesus says about the temple? He says something, anybody know the rest of it? Greater then the temple is here. Something greater than the temple is there. Now, can we go back to that picture of, yep, right here. <laughs> Here's what's astounding to me. His disciples are looking at this. He's like, this is going into the sea. And they're like, does that mean that God's over with us? The sacrificial system is over? No more restoration? No more friendship with God? Nope, something better than the, than the temple is here. What is it, Jesus. Here's what's amazing. You know what I love about this picture? I never knew this until I saw the temple from this angle. You know what this is right here? That's Calvary. That's where Jesus died. That's where Jesus cried out, it is finished. So can you imagine being right here, wherever it is, watching Jesus die in the shadow of the temple, having in the back of your mind something greater than the temple is here. He cries out, it's finished. You know what he means when he says it is finished? He's saying anything that could justifiably lead to God being angry at us and abandoning us has been placed onto Jesus. Anything. This is where the veil was torn. From where? From top to bottom. The presence of God no longer housed in here, but available to anybody who's in the finished work of Jesus Christ. You know what happened here? Here's what's crazy about this. I'm just going to nerd out on you historically a little bit. I know you don't finish a sermon with a slide, but hey, we're, we're all about breaking rules here in Denver. Is... Uh, you know, this is where you're buying your animals to make sacrifice, to be forgiven, to be able to enter into the presence of God. The first century Jewish historian named Josephus, he said in a typical Passover holiday celebration, around 255,000 lambs alone would be bought and slaughtered so that people could feel like they were forgiven of their sins so they could enter the presence of God. And on this little hill, in the shadow of this thing, Jesus says, It's finished. It's finished, and it's finished. Something greater than the temple is here. What he's crying out is that what we have longed for that was lost at Eden, what we long for when we wake up in Denver on Monday morning, and we wonder why we feel so hauntingly incomplete in our hearts on our own, as successful as we might be, was found in the finished work of Jesus. 
the true and greater temple, the true and greater lamb who was slain, the true and greater once and for all sacrifice who atones for our sins so that we don't have to every Passover holiday come back and buy another lamb once and for all. It is finished. It is finished. It is finished. And what we find then is wedded together then and the anger of Jesus is forgiveness that transforms our relationship into friendship. That the anger of Jesus, like I'm talking about this in escalating levels of good news. Is it good news that we have a friend in Jesus that gets angry at the same things that we get angry at? Of course it is. But you know what's better news? Is that the lens to which we understand our relationship with God is not that he's angry at me anymore. Now, apart from Jesus, that's absolutely the biblical way for you to understand it. Is, is God hate sin? Yes. Are we enemies of God before we are restored back in a relationship with him? Absolutely. Read Ephesians 2, for example. But is the primary identity that we have fundamentally transformed and made new when something better than the temple is here and he cries out, it is finished, and dies in our place for our sins once and for all? Does that change everything? It does. Because at the heart of the gospel is this great exchange that anything that would be deserving of God getting angry at me has been poured onto Jesus and been crucified with him and buried with him. And when Jesus got up and he walked away from the grave, that sin stayed there. Only Jesus walked out of the grave. The rest stayed buried. As well as, look at this, look at me. You're not just forgiven, you're adopted. You're not just forgiven. Too many Christians stop at forgiveness, as good news as that is. And they just think, yeah, like I'm a worthless pile of crap that God happens to like and be nice to every once in a while. Like, terrible, 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 bad, bad, bad. No, nope. here's the great exchange of the gospel. That's, not, that's just a one-way exchange. You don't just give Jesus your sin. Jesus gives you his righteousness. He gives you his belovedness. He gives you an identity where the lens through which God sees you is not through the worst mistakes you've made or the things you should have done better today, but rather in Jesus' performance. You know the great thing about Jesus' performance? You can't do better than that. You can't improve it. I know you might be killing it right now. You won't be doing better than Jesus' performance. You know what the great thing is? You can't do anything and have it taken away from you either. It is with you. It is for you. It has changed your very heart. To intersect all of this with kind of... Um, just real life. Um, I love how, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy that the word of God is living and active. And I think it's no more, more evident than at least in my own life. And hopefully you've felt seen and loved on this journey as well is when like first century temple procedure intersects with like the existential crisis we might have tomorrow morning. I was in my city group a couple weeks ago um, and a guy in it. All right. Well, let me, let me, um, Oh, okay, can we bring up this next slide? Okay, so in my city group, uh, we're working through a book called Rhythms of Life, which is really good. And the first chapter of it's on identity. Now, I know you're not gonna, right now you're gonna start reading this and tune out what I'm saying. So try not to do that for one second, okay? And try to hear uh, what it is I'm saying. It was interesting because we were talking about identity and actually go ahead and read it. You can tell I'm figuring this out as we're going along, okay? Um, it's, it's interesting. So what this author uh, uh, does at the end of the chapter is he talks about the way the New Testament describes somebody who is a Christian. And I'm just going to read all these real quick. All these have chapter and verse references. Accepted, adopted, beloved, blessed, child of God, chosen, co-heir with Christ, a conqueror, delighted in, delivered, forgiven, free, friend, healed, 
innocent, justified, kept, justif- uh, kept loved, a masterpiece, a new creation, never alone, not condemned, righteous saint, set apart, washed clean, whole, wonderfully made. And so, well, here's the thing. I'm about to juke you here for a second. And this isn't coming from me, but it's coming from this guy, Johnny, uh, in my city group. He said, you know, it's really interesting because I read this and he said, I don't feel like I know only many Christians who actually think of themselves this way. He's like, he's like it seems like when like, Christians get together, we talk about how crap we are, then we talk about how crap all the other Christians are, and then we pray and call it a night. <laughs> like, is everybody encouraged? You want to come back next time? He said, I thought it was one of those perceptive things I've heard recently. It was so good. He said, totally offhand. And I think at the root of it, is this, is a failure to believe that a truer and better temple is here, that something better than the temple is here. That there's somebody who is here who has done a work in our place so that the meeting with God we yearn for, so that the forgiveness of God that we so desperately need, that the reconciled relationship with God that we so desperately clamor for has been secured in the finished work of Jesus. And instead, what we feel is let me tell you something. I, I just feel like um, this might be particularly helpful to somebody. What is easy to feel is that tomorrow you're going to wake up and you're starting from zero and you have to perform. And if you do not excel at a level of absolute perfection tomorrow, at the end of the day, what you are met with is the scowl of God. And then you'll start Tuesday the same way. And you'll live with this posture of, God loves me, but it's more of him really putting up with me. Um, God will use me, but not really because I'm mostly damaged goods. Um, I can overcome destructive patterns, behavior, but I'm so damaged. I mean, why should I really have a vision for life as something better than that? I'll probably just relapse into the crappy ways I've always lived anyways. Every day feels like a day of atonement for us. If we don't pour ourselves out with a particular perfection and excellence, we will be met with being forsaken and abandoned. Something better than the temple is here. Something better than the temple is here. Something better than the temple is here. The true and better temple, Jesus, where God and man are reconciled in the God-man, Jesus. The true and better lamb, the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of sin so that we can have friendship with God is afforded to us in the gospel of Jesus and us receiving in our hearts and proclaiming with our tongues that Jesus died for my sins and he is Lord of my life. Um, Yeah, all I want to do here is I want us to create some space to pray. I'm going to, if we can leave this up for a little bit, uh, the band will come up and play. Um, I'm just curious if like, this is the way you see yourself. Now, some of you might not be Christians. You're exploring uh, faith. We're really glad that you're here. 
And none of this might make sense to you. The first step is to like receive and believe and follow Jesus, what he's done in your place. Um, but a lot of you have been Christians for a long time um, and you were living out of a fundamentally flawed identity. And maybe today can be the day that stops. Um, you don't have to be so insecure. You don't have to make self-destructive choices anymore. Uh, you don't have to be cycles of brokenness. You have a vision for your life that is coherent with the sort of value that God has declared and spoken over you. And we don't have to feel like every single day is a performance that we will be graded upon to deem at the end of it if we're worthy people or not. A terrible, terrible way to have to live. And so God, um, I do uh, pray that you would express to people right now in this space, in this time of response, that you are alive and that you're real and that you're changing lives. You love us. You see us. Your heart is kind and welcoming. And you don't just forgive us to put up with us, but you adopt us into your family and you call us your beloved. You choose us. And um, I really do want to ask for deliverance right now. That's just the word that keeps coming to mind. Deliverance uh, for men and women in the room uh, who are living lives out of something other than the identity you've spoken over them. Um, The wild diversity of chaotic expressions that can take (laughs) is astounding. Um, But your spirit sees them all. And your kindness, you discipline us and you bring us back home in the way that a good dad does. I pray against believing that we're damaged goods. I pray against believing that our identity is the worst things that we've done or that have happened to us. Um, I pray against believing that every day is a performance that we have to excel in in order to feel valuable. I pray against the sinful ways we cope with the ways we believe we're damaged and see it as justification because we can't envision a life of holiness. I pray that we were just in the same way that Jesus heard, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Uh, Would you speak that over your sons and daughters here today? And we just ask these things in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.